father. The men on the road to Emmaus confessed how their hearts burned within them as your son, the Lord Jesus, opened the scriptures. And our prayer this morning is this, that our hearts would burn within us, that our minds would be renewed and our wills and hearts strengthened as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus. Open our eyes by your spirit, we cry, for Jesus' namesake. Amen. Rip Van Winkle is a short story by Washington Irving, published in the sketchbook of 1819 to 20. It tells the story of Rip, an amiable farmer from New York who <clears throat> wanders one day into the Catskill Mountains, and he comes across a group of dwarfs. He accepts their offer of a drink, but little do they know that uh, they've poisoned it. And then he falls asleep, eventually waking up, 20 years later. He returns to the town to discover his wife has died, his children are grown, and George Washington's portrait hangs in place of King George III's. He talks to the townspeople. They can't remember the old days. But the thing is, there has been a massive revolution. And Irving's rather strange story is a cautionary tale of the reality that it is so possible to be asleep to a revolution. Is it possible this morning that we might be asleep to the revolution that has happened in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's only King? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus bursts onto the stage of human history with the most dramatic announcement in history and in the whole of the universe. The kingdom of God is here. Everything that the nation of Israel was waiting for, everything that God said he was going to do has now come, and it's changed everything and over the last few weeks, if you've been with us in our series, you'll have noticed that individual lives here and there are being transformed. We've met the man with the withered hand. Uh, we've met the leper and the paralytic. But we might be tempted to think these are just isolated incidents and one-offs. But this morning we need to see that this revolution is not just for isolated individuals here and there in, in a corner of Palestine. It's off the Richter scale, massive. Because now in chapter 3, verse 7, it's as if Mark takes the wide-angled lens. The rule of God, the kingdom, is not just for isolated individuals, but the whole of the nation of Israel, and beyond it, the whole of the world. This morning, what we're going to do is have three pieces to the jigsaw, we're going to put them together as they form one big sentence. It's just up here, the whole sentence, the nation constituted, through the conquest of the enemy, dividing insider from outsider. There's going to be a challenge for us at the end. But here's the first, then. God's new nation is constituted. Because in chapter 3, verse 7, the scope widens right out as Mark describes a great multitude, a crowd now in their thousands. But the geographer will notice where this crowd is coming from, and we've got a map for you to look at. If you look at the map, you can see just about the nation, 
But what Mark records is that people are coming from Galilee. That's up in the north. Judah and Jerusalem, that's the nation's capital. Idumea, 120 miles south, beyond the Jordan, that's due east. And Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles way up in the far northwest corner. This is the whole nation pouring in. The picture is almost of national revival. But what the sociologists will notice is that the gathering isn't just the Jewish multicultural elite, but it's ethnically diverse because Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem is the home of the kosher Jew, but Idumea and the Transjordan is racially mixed. In other words, clean Jew and unclean Gentile are pouring in effectively from the Gaza Strip or the West Bank today. Do you see the picture? The kingdom of God is here. The nation is being regathered to the king. Not just two areas, a broken nation, but a united nation. And this is a microcosm of the salvation of the world. I was in Berlin in 1989 just as the wall was coming down. My father was in the British Army, stationed in Berlin in the 1960s when the wall went up. So we think that's rather special. And when I went in 89, uh, you could actually hire a chisel and a hammer, which I did, and knock out a chunk of the wall, which I did. And I've got a chunk about that big, and I took it back to my parents and to my father and said, you were there when it went up. Here's a chunk of it, now that it's come down. The great nation of Germany, fractured, but reunited as that wall came down. And that's the picture here. The king has come to rebuild the nation as God promised he would. And the picture that he has come to restore it is these healings in verse 10. He healed them. There are no referrals to dermatology or cardiology or urology or orthopedics. No referrals to oncology or neurology. This is a king who can heal the Old Testament sign of salvation. And it's thrilling because all the way through the Bible's story, the promise was that God would one day reverse the exile. He would take the broken pieces and restore the nation forever. The promise was really made in Ezekiel 37 that Jeff read to us earlier on. But the backdrop to that text is dreadful. Ezekiel is in the Valley of Dry Bones. It's really a cemetery. And he's not so much a priest reading the last rites to the nation in sin and judgment, rather an undertaker. It's a horrible scene, almost borrowed from a Halloween movie. He's walking around a valley of death, dead bones. And yet, into that context, God says, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. I will gather them from all around. I will bring them into their own lands. I will make them one nation in one land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be their king forever. They will not defile themselves anymore with idols and detestable things, or with their transgressions, and I will save them from their backsliding in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, 
and I will be their God. Who will do this in Ezekiel 37 but my servants in the line of David's? And what will this prince forever do but bring a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant, setting them in their land, the great promise of God to Abraham that there would be a people in a land of rest. This is that. And the next scene matters too. It's as if our director Steven Spielberg shouts, shouts, cut. And we now move to a mountain in verse 13. But it's not random, because mountains in the Old Testament are highly significant. It is on mountains that God reveals himself at moments of salvation and redemption. On Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the law, the charter, the founding document of the nation. So now Jesus stands on the mountain. He went up to the mountainside. This is the new Moses. This is the constitution of the new people of God. This is a new Moses leading a new redemption, a new covenant, a new exodus for a new land. Verse 13, he called to him those he desired, and they came. Well, my children, who were raised in the UK up until now, are now at school busy uh, learning all about <coughs> your history, my history, their history, I suppose, now. And uh, they're learning about 1492, when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, they're learning about the uh, 1760s, when England had the 13 colonies along the Atlantic coast. They're learning about that dreadful moment, the American War of Independence. We won't go into that. 1775, and the treaty in 1783, and the land east of the Mississippi, and the new nation. But the point is that what every nation needs when it's being formed, I suppose, is a revolution, but then a founding charter. 18, uh, 1787, the Constitution adopted in, was it uh, 1789, the Bill of Rights, 1791, and so on and so forth. A new president, George Washington, a small people then, four million. Now, of course, the greatest nation on earth. What do you think? The greatest nation on earth? 330 million, with 100,000 legal uh, immigrants a year, uh, pouring in uh, to your borders. Well, it's as if Mark, a constitutional historian, is giving us something of that about the kingdom of God. But the power of this Jesus is absolute. Verse 12, he appointed. Verse 16, he appointed. And he appointed 12 because these 12 men now stand for the 12 tribes of a reunited nation. This is the birth of a brand new nation, the new people of God, a nation formed through the word of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 19, as the nation of Israel are formed, they are formed through the word of God, the law. Now this new nation is founded on the word of Jesus Christ. So Paul the Apostle can write in Ephesians 2 that this church, this kingdom, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. This is a people gathered into 
into the king through the word of this king. And there's an expression of that here this morning, because here we all are. And on your smartphone or iPad or as you sit with your church Bible on your knee, what we're doing is gathering in by the Spirit around and under the word of Jesus this King. And while we're on this, what this means is we must always be, and we will always be, a church of the Word of Jesus Christ, your strapline, all of the Bible for all of life. We mean that, and whatever the cultural pressures upon us may be, we will be a kingdom gathered in, through, and under the Word of Jesus Christ. So, there's our first point. It's a new nation constituted. But here's the second thing to notice. Mark wants us to see it's a new nation constituted through the conquest of the enemy. It was authorized by the highest authority, and it was codenamed Operation Neptune Spear. It was sent by the CIA with special forces under the command of special mission units during the raid. In addition to that, a Navy SEAL team of six participated and headed in with night stalkers into the area of concern. It led to a 10-day search, eventually locating, capturing, and killing Osama bin Laden on May the 2nd at 1 a.m. Pakistan time. His body was taken onto a ship, buried at sea according to Islamic tradition. And then the news came out that that terrible enemy of this country, who was the mastermind behind the Twin Towers attack and multiple attacks on this nation, had been captured and was dead and gone forever. Well, the mission of Jesus on earth is to take out Satan. And it's very clear in our text that that is what is happening. Verse 11, wherever he went, the unclean spirits saw him and they they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. Verse 14, he sent them out to preach these 12 and to have authority to cast out demons. But it's in verse 27 that we see the full power of this king on earth. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. The question then is, does Jesus have authority and sufficient sovereign power to bind the strong man, Satan, Because ever since the beginning, in Genesis 3, the strong man Satan has held humanity captive under sin. Can this Jesus bind Satan and fulfill the promise of God in Genesis 3 and verse 15? The answer is yes. At the cross, Jesus dies for our sin. He takes the punishment we deserve. That sinners like us might have the price that God demands paid. And so the gates, the gates of the prison are 
flung open in the death and resurrection of Jesus by this victorious Christ, Christus Victor, who disarms the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. We've talked about American history. I think it's time for a little bit of English history then. Our big date was 1066, the Norman invasion. It was actually the first and only time England has ever been invaded successfully. And with that invasion came a revolution. As William the Conqueror arrived, everything changed. First thing he did was to build the Tower of London in the center of London, a statement of conquest. I'm here, and I rule London now. And then everything changed. Anglo-Saxon government was dismantled. French became the new language of court. The uh, court of arms, Dieu et mon droit, God is my right, in French. Still, French is the official language of England. A new baronial system was introduced. Castles were built and cathedrals, stating, you are now a subjugated people under the full might, tyranny, and authority of William of Normandy. At the cross, the revolution is complete. We'll see it when Jesus returns. At the cross, we see Satan is fully defeated forever. And I say this simply because it's very possible this morning that many of us feel frightened of cosmic evil. I was in a restaurant in Philadelphia yesterday. I took one of the children down. And as we were eating our uh, supper, uh, dinner, um, I, I saw this sign, which I said to Emily was so amazing. It had to make its way into the sermon. So here it is. Above the fireplace, it read, when fear knocks the door, faith answers, and no one is there. When fear knocks on your door, faith needs to answer, and no one is there. We need to have faith in Jesus, Christus Victor, the victorious Christ, who has vanquished Satan. Where are you fearing Satan in your life or in your world? Vanquished at the cross. It will be consummated at the return of Jesus Christ, a new nation constituted through the comprehensive defeat of the enemy, the strong man, Jesus Christ. But there's something of a sting in the last point, isn't there? For this divides. A new nation constituted through the defeats of evil, but it divides insider from outsider. And what happens down in verse 20, down to verse 31 and following, is that there is now, if you like, the verdict of humanity on this Jesus. First, there's the family's verdict, and then we discover the verdict of the religious establishment and its rejection. The family's verdict, he's mad in the Greek, literally. He's gone nuts. He's berserk. He's a lunatic. It's as if this Jesus needs to be detained um, in some asylum. I don't quite know how to illustrate this for you, but I wonder if it is that moment in the almost blasphemous, probably blasphemous movie, um, The Holy Grail, um, 
when the whole uh, family arrive at the door and they cry out, where is Brian? Bring out the Messiah. And the response of the family um, is that he's not the Messiah. He's just a very naughty boy. Uh, that movie, for me, is a blasphemous movie, but in a sense, the outrage of this is here. That's what they're saying. He's not the Messiah. He's just an idiot. He's a madman. Don't listen to him. Don't follow him. But that's mild compared to the verdict of the religious establishments. Verse 22, not mad, but bad, possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Of course, it's illogical. Why would Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand, but not mad, he's bad. I wonder if that's your verdict of Jesus. For to say of Jesus, he's mad, or to say of Jesus, he's bad, or to say to this Jesus, I will ignore you, is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, which, according to Jesus, is the one sin that can never be forgiven. Imagine you're in a hotel room on the 10th floor, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, the alarm goes off. It's ear-piercing and brain-splitting. And you get up in the stupor, and you suddenly realize there's smoke coming out of the door. And then you open the door, and there are flames all down the corridor. As you're trying to get your head around what is going on, suddenly there's a bang on the window. And you open the curtains to discover that there is the fire rescuer. He's on the ladder, smashing through the window with his axe, saying, come quickly, come now. We need to get you out. And imagine the unimaginable as you say, no, I will not be rescued by you, and you push the ladder away. If there, on that 10th floor, you actually reject the rescuer, the only rescuer, you cannot be rescued. This sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is to reject the king who has come to rescue you from your sins. If you're watching online or you're here this morning and you're saying, I will not trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and I will not orientate my life around his good and generous rule, if you say no to the rescuer, then you're saying no to forgiveness, which means there can be no rescue from sin. Pastorally, this verse is very troubling. What if I've ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? The point is, if you're worried about it, you've never done it. Or if you're worried about it, you aren't doing it. The point is trusting in Christ. And if you're Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you are forgiven. You are included in his kingdom forever. Mad. Bad. Or, I'm just going to ignore this Jesus a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I warn you in the strongest terms to come to Christ and to turn to Him for forgiveness. Because the picture as we finish is glorious. The picture as we finish is glorious, isn't it? This little group you can see in verse 34, my mother and my brothers, who are they? Jesus answered, looking around, verse 34, those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. 
For verse 35, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And in this last snapshot, it's as if we get a little doctrine of the church, an ecclesiology, if you like. It's a gathering with Jesus at the center. It's a family of brothers and sisters, and it's a holy family doing the will of God. I love bumping into new families and working out who's who, and you can always tell, can't you, the family likeness. Are you related to him and her? Yeah, I'm his brother. Yeah, she's my daughter. You can always tell the family likeness. So this is a gathering, Jesus at the center, brothers and sisters all doing the will of God the Father. And next week we'll discover that this will of God is to listen to, to obey the word of Jesus. The will of God the Father finds itself in the word of God the Son, a gathering with Jesus at the center. By the way, not with rules at the center, not with tradition at the center, uh, not with um, orthodoxy at the center. No, it's Jesus at the center. And we love orthodoxy because of Jesus. We might love that tradition because of Jesus. It's a gathering, and it's Jesus at the center. Not me at the center. Not you at the center. Not doing our will, but the will of God. A family saved and included into Jesus Christ. And we enter this family not through getting a green card or this nation getting through biometrics. We don't have to prove that we are of good character. We don't have to go through screening in at the embassy. You know, you enter this family through trusting in Christ, his shed blood and broken body, his grace. This is not a family you have to impress to enter. You enter it through the saving death and eternal grace and forgiveness of a God who loves you and will love you for free and forever. It is a new nation constituted through the conquest of the enemy. And it divides the insider from the out. Are you in or are you on the outside? Come to Jesus this morning and you enter into this family of Jesus. Let's pray together as we sit. Father, thank you for the great good news of your saving death in the death of your son, the mighty resurrection and his imminent return. Our prayer is that we will indeed be a family devoted to Jesus, him at the center, as we do your will, listening to him and obeying his word. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.